Please open up your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our passage for this morning, for the second week in a row, is 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 16. And let's go ahead and begin by reading this passage together. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 16. In it, the Apostle Paul writes, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Rules are generally helpful things. Rules can provide structure to an otherwise chaotic community or society. Rules can deter the sinfulness of man's heart through the threat of punishment, thus protecting the innocent. They can even guide and direct a person towards a proper understanding of righteousness, to a right definition of something as basic as love. However, there are instances when even good rules even the most well-intentioned rules can go wrong. I think of the infamous zero-tolerance policy. Some organizations, say a school, will try to squelch some really negative activity like violence through a zero-tolerance policy. And what inevitably happens? Some innocent person, some righteous individual even, will get swept up in the process and actually get punished for something that not only wasn't wrong, but which might have actually been right. You know, the bully starts picking on a student and the student defends themselves. It turns into a full-blown fight and now both students are suspended. Or even worse, a bully starts picking on a student and another student steps in to defend the one being picked on and they end up getting suspended in the process for no other reason than for doing what the scriptures and even conscious conscience tells us is the morally right action. You've all heard stories like this before. One of the benefits of rules is that they can make things simple. You take the zero tolerance policy and that's one of the benefits. It can make things simple. There's just one penalty that's meted out, and it's meted out in every occurrence, regardless of context. But one of the drawbacks of these types of rules is that they can actually inhibit justice and righteousness and even personal maturity and growth. Again, going back to the zero tolerance policy, it meets out equal punishments, but that's not to say that it meets out equitable punishments. There's a difference, right, between equal and equitable. Both the bully and the one defending their classmate against the bully get an equal punishment. But I don't think that's fair to say that they get a fair punishment, right? The one student was acting maliciously. They were harming another. The other was actually defending that same student. The two actions are ostensibly the same. They both fought, but the purpose of those actions and the motives driving them are diametrically opposed such that they were morally different. 
The one student was performing an evil, another a good. And yet they're both punished for it. That's obviously not just. That's not fair. What sort of a message do you think that sends to the student who wants to defend their classmates from the bully? It tells them don't get involved, right? Mind your own business. And this actually emboldens the bully. Keep in mind, the bully is already inclined towards lawlessness. The other student presumably is not. They're inclined towards righteousness. And so when a law is put in place that says all fighting is bad, the bully scoffs at the rule and fights anyways. The law-abiding student, though, takes pause and wonders, should I defend my classmate? After all, I've been told all fighting is bad. And what happens then when the bully has no one to resist him? Does it discourage his bully? No, it only encourages him more, since there seem to be no consequences for his action. This is what I mean when I say that rules can actually inhibit righteousness. Rules can sometimes protect the wicked and allow them to flourish, while at the same time restraining the actions of the righteous. And then guess what happens? The lawbreaker is not punished for his wickedness. The rod is not applied to the back of the fool, at least not until the righteous step in and break the rules. In which case, the only message that's sent to the bully is that there's no moral difference between his act of bullying and the other student's act of sacrifice. So the bully isn't really brought to repentance. And the student who would step in and fight for their peers, they don't get the chance to develop the courage that goes into making the right kind of choice. If anything, they're told that the thing that they ought to do is mind their own business. They're taught to think in a very self-centered fashion. In short, their moral development is stunted. In fact, by taking the decision-making out of it, they lose the opportunity to learn when it is good to fight and when it is not. Back when I was a school administrator, we had a very structured environment. There were a lot of rules. And it provided a very ordered and safe environment for the students at my school. But our school only went to ninth grade. And I would often have parents come to me and say, Mr. Jokey, why don't you guys have a high school? I would love for my kids to come here during high school. And there were a lot of different factors that played into that decision as a school. But I would always tell them, you know, I'm actually kind of glad that we don't have a high school. Because you only have your student for three more years, maybe, before they leave your home. And they've got to learn how to live in a world without the kind of safety net that we have to offer. And I can think of no better time for them to learn that than now, when they're at this stage of development and living in your home, so that you can continue to provide them guidance as they learn to live with that kind of freedom. Maturity requires the ability to understand nuance to understand that there's a fundamental difference between fighting to hurt someone and fighting to help someone. And that's something that's sometimes hard to capture in a set of rules. As we get older, the rules begin to pass away. And as I explained last week, this is one of the reasons why. It's not only because, hopefully, the rules have given shape to our hearts and at least taught us to restrain so much of the wickedness that resides there, right? It's also because, again, hopefully, we've learned to think with this kind of nuance. We've learned to distinguish between the good kind of fighting, for instance, and the bad kind. And so we know when to engage in the one kind while still avoiding the other. Friends, so it is with the Christian. And just so you understand, I don't just mean that on an individual level. Yes, hopefully, as we grow in Christ, there's a kind of maturity that begins to develop that makes rules less and less necessary to govern us. I don't just mean that in this respect. No, I also mean this corporately. I mean there's a kind of growth that is taking place, that has taken place corporately within the, within the entire people of God over history, that has made this kind of stringent regulation that was once required for God's people less and less necessary. I refer to this in last week's message. Matthew 8, Jesus has asked this question. 
from John the Baptist's disciples as to why they and the Pharisees fast, and Jesus and his disciples don't. And part of Jesus' answer is to say, you can't put new wine into old wineskins or else it will cause the wineskins to burst. And he says that in relation to the Old Testament law and the coming of the Holy Spirit under the new covenant. It used to be that God's people had a very strict set of rules because they were still spiritually immature, underdeveloped. But now that the Spirit has come, and now that he indwells his people, there is presumably less need to restrain them. Of course, that's not to say that there isn't still a right and a wrong, or that it's not possible for God's people to sin. They sin, right, and sin often. It's just that presumably there's not the general inclination of their heart anymore towards this sin. To quote 1 John 5, 3, which I feel like I'm quoting a lot lately, uh, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. You think about this, and this is even why we have things like Matthew 18. It's because if a believer is engaging in wanton, unrepentant sin, then we begin to assume that They are perhaps not a believer after all. To quote 1 John once again, this time from chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Friends, this is why it is not necessary for God to continue to restrain his people in the same way he did in the Old Testament. It's because by virtue of the coming of the Spirit, that kind of restraint is no longer needed at the same level. They've matured. And so now the rules that restrain their sin and made things simple for them, they've passed away, not in order to nullify the intent of those commands, but so that they might fulfill them. Paul talks about this in Galatians 3 when he speaks of the law functioning as a kind of guardian who managed the affairs of the air and even ruled over the air, though they were the owner of everything, until the time should come that the air would be ready to manage their inheritance on their own. That's what happened to God's people in Christ. They were once under a guardian who who managed all their affairs for them, thought for them, kept things simple for them, told them what to do, until the Spirit could come to them through Christ. But now that the Spirit has come, that need for management, for protection from themselves, really, has passed away. It's like what Paul says just a couple of chapters later, when he again speaks of the Christian's freedom from the law in Galatians 5. He tells them that in Christ they've been set free from the law, but that they shouldn't use this freedom to serve self, but to fulfill the law. And as he explains what he means by this, he proceeds to list the deeds of the flesh, followed by the fruit of the Spirit, before concluding with reference to the fruit of the Spirit, against such things there is no law. There's no need to restrain or govern the individual who wants to do right. You need to cut that individual loose, actually. It makes me think of a story I heard a number of years back, a kind of parable of a king this king was looking for a new carriage driver. And the road away from this king's castle journeyed down a treacherous mountain pass where at one point there was hardly enough room for the carriage to pass without plunging down the face of a cliff. The search for a new carriage driver eventually came down to three men. And so the king asked the first man, How close can you drive my carriage without sending it over the cliff? And the first man answered, oh, uh, incredibly close, my king. I'd say I could probably bring the wheels within a foot of the edge without sending it over. And the king asked the second man the same question. And he said, within six inches, my king, that's how good of a driver I am. But when the king asked the third man the same question, he got a far different answer. This man said, with all due respect, my king, If you're riding in the carriage, then I'm going to stay as far away from the edge as possible. Of course, you can guess which of these three carriage drivers the king hired, right? 
That's the idea that Paul is trying to communicate in Galatians 5. And this is how sin and righteousness works in the heart of the Christian. Before, we were inclined towards sin, and so there needed to be a law set upon our actions to restrain the inclinations of our heart. But now that the Spirit has come, it's not that there's no longer such a thing as sin. It's not as if we can't, you know, plunge over the edge of the cliff. It's that our attitude towards sin is moving so far in the opposite direction that we don't need to be told, don't go this far. You understand? There's a sense in which the Christian isn't on defense anymore with respect to sin. They're on offense with respect to righteousness. They're not trying to restrain their actions anymore so much as they are trying to cut them loose because what's wanting to come out now is less sin and more righteousness. They want to do right. And again, please hear that, right? With all the appropriate footnotes attached to that statement. But this is what Paul is talking about when he says in Galatians 5, 13 and 14, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We are free in Christ, but not to indulge the desires of the flesh. Rather, we've been set free in Christ to let loose these inner yearnings that have been given by the Spirit of God to honor and glorify God. It's important that you understand this as we come back again to this morning's passage. In this passage, Paul is discussing marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Of course, this is not only a highly relevant topic, it's also a highly controversial one. There's a lot of confusion surrounding this subject in the church. I said last week that we dig into this subject together. I try to settle some of this confusion, but that in order to do so, I first needed you to understand that when both Jesus and Paul work through issues like this one, they don't tend to think in terms of legal codes. They think in terms of principles. And I said that this is partly the benefit of a passage like this one. It doesn't just teach you what to think, it teaches you how to think. We're watching a mature Christian work his way through a very complex and nuanced issue. For a, further, I had you not only observe that Paul doesn't attempt to provide a, a comprehensive position on marriage, divorce, and remarriage in this passage, but that he works his way through this issue with a series of greater and lesser priorities. Now, what are those priorities? What are the principles that give shape to his understanding of this issue? That's what we're going to look at here in part two of this message this morning. And I think the thing I really want you to understand before we jump into these principles is that this is the way that both Paul and the Corinthians are thinking about this subject. Meaning they're not approaching this issue so much from, uh, from the perspective of what is permissible and not permissible, which is this very defensive sort of posture. Instead, they're thinking about it more in terms of profitable and unprofitable, which is more of an offensive posture. What they're wanting to know is not, what am I allowed to do? You know, which is sort of like that carriage driver who wants to get as close to the edge of the cliff as he can before he falls off. Instead, what they're wanting to know is, how can I best honor Christ? understand the difference there? It's subtle, but it's important. You ask most Christians, and I think they tend to look at this issue defensively. What am I permitted to do? What am I not permitted to do? Those are the questions coming from a perspective that wants to know how close can I get to sin before it's sin? That's not how Christians should really be thinking about sin. We need to be the carriage driver that's saying, I'm going to stay as far away from the edge of the cliff as possible. We need to be thinking about how we can positively, proactively honor Christ, right, with all of our being. That's how the Corinthians were thinking about this subject, and that's how we need to be thinking about it as well. If you remember, the question at hand for them, or at least for this particular group of Corinthians, was, how can I dedicate all of myself to Jesus Christ. Remember, these are Christians who like to think of themselves as especially 
spiritual people, well, that focus on the Spirit is not only leading them to say things like, all things are lawful for me, like what we saw back in chapter 6, but it's even leading some of them to live an almost entirely spiritual life, completely devoid of any concern for the body. Meaning that with respect to marriage, what they want to know is not what loopholes are there in the scripture that will allow me to drop my deadbeat husband or that will allow me to divorce my wife so I can marry someone prettier. Rather, what they're wanting to know is does it make sense to divorce my spouse so I can devote myself entirely to Christ? Listen, that does some things to how these priorities are going to be expressed. If I could put it this way, what comes out here is less this idea of this is wrong, but this is also wrong, and this is the lesser of the two wrongs. So you go that route. That's not what Paul is going to be expressing in this passage. It's more, this is best, this is optimal, but then if you can't do that, do this instead. It's not quite as good, but it's still good. And that's important to note, by the way, because when Paul says something like, it's great to be single, but if you can't control yourself, get married, he's not saying that someone who is in sin, right, if they get married. He's not saying sexual immorality is sinful, marriage is a little less sinful, but still sort of bad, and you're only, you know, you've only reached total righteousness when you don't have any sexual relations at all. I mean, that would actually go against what he's saying at the beginning of chapter 7, right? No, he's saying singleness is a really good route, and if you can get married, that's good too. It may not be optimal, but it's still a great way to honor Christ with your bodies. It's all in light of what is more or less profitable, not what is permissible and less or not permissible. So we're not going to talk a whole lot today about what is permissible and not permissible as we talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Not because there are not permissible and non-permissible actions with respect to marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but because we're looking at this issue from the perspective of spirit-driven people. Spirit-driven people who are trying to please God and to get such things there is no law. Let me just say this one more time. If the question you want answered is, when can I divorce my wife and marry someone else? Then not only are you going to be disappointed with what I have to say today, but I hate to tell you this, you're already looking at this completely wrong. You're asking the wrong question. You're asking what 2 plus 2 is when we're sitting in history class, okay? Understand it's a completely different subject that we're dealing with here, a completely different plane of thinking. So, that being said, what are the principles that shape Paul's thinking on this issue? I know I said last week we talk about this in terms of priorities, but the more and more I think about this, I don't know that's the best way of thinking about this. Paul does express some prioritization in this passage. He says, this is good, and if you can't do this, then do this. But even still, I think what will best summarize his thinking is uh, really to see this passage through the lens of three principles. Or you could even say it's really just one principle, which can be broken down into three subpoints, three different perspectives on this one principle. The overarching principle is to live in light of the gospel. That's really the governing principle that drives all of Paul's counsel in this passage. He's thinking about this issue from the perspective of one who has been redeemed from the wrath of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean to live in light of the gospel, right? That can seem kind of vague. I think you see the answer emerge in at least three different, you can call them sub-principles or perspectives, whatever you want to call it, even priorities, label it however you want in your notes, <laughs> uh, that we see here in this passage. And the first principle is this. Number one, live in light of the freedom that we gain in Christ. Live in light of the freedom that we gain in Christ. If you want to know how to navigate an issue as complex, complex and nuanced as marriage, divorce, and remarriage, then one principle, or I guess you might call it a priority, that you need to keep in mind 
is the freedom that we've received in Christ. Now, already I imagine you might be misunderstanding what I'm saying with this point. When I'm talking about freedom here, I'm not talking about it in the way that so many Christians are inclined to use it. When they hear this word freedom, what they hear is essentially lawlessness, right? What some theologians call antinomianism. They think freedom means being able to do whatever we want, essentially freedom to sin without consequences. And this is not the kind of freedom that Paul is talking about. In fact, Paul actually condemned that kind of freedom back at the beginning of chapter 6, didn't he? When he said to that one group that thought of this spiritual life, that, that they thought this spiritual life meant that they could perform all kinds of sexual immorality with the body, he said to them, quote, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be dominated by anything. This isn't what freedom meant for Paul. Freedom wasn't freedom to sin. It was freedom from sin. Even freedom from the written code in order to be completely dedicated in service to Christ. As he says in Romans 7, 4, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And as he says again in verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Again, this is the whole point of Galatians 5. As he says in verses 13 and 14, once again, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is working under the assumption that sin really is bad, that God's commands really are good, and that the Christian understands and believes all of this. And so they don't have to be told, you must do this, because for them, it's you get to do this. And this is what I'm talking about when I say to you that you need to live in light of the freedom that we've gained in Christ. That's not a freedom to sin. That's freedom from sin. Both in terms of its penalty and its power. Freedom to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. This principle occurs primarily in verses 8 and 9. Although, really, I think you could say that it is the governing principle of this entire chapter, of all of 1 Corinthians 7. I noted in last week's message that in this text, Paul makes a distinction between his own thoughts and Jesus' instruction on this topic. There are these uh, two statements in verses 10 and 12. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And then he says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And the passages that he probably has in mind when he says this are Jesus' teaching on divorce from the Gospel of Matthew and from Matthew 19 specifically. In that passage, Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question about no-fault divorce by saying God didn't design marriage this way. Divorce is not permissible for any reason save for one, and that's sexual immorality. And as I explained last week, even then, I don't think Jesus is really talking about what's permissible when he says that, instead he's trying to acknowledge the Old Testament Jew who, like the Corinthians, are thinking about this issue from the opposite perspective. The Old Testament Jew who's wondering not when can I divorce my wife, but when must I? You see, for various reasons I'm not going to get into this morning, this is what the Old Testament Jew, faithful Old Testament Jew, men like Jesus' own father, Joseph, it's what they would have thought they were bound to do once they discovered that their spouse was guilty of sexual immorality. It wasn't a choice. They had to divorce them. Regardless, Jesus says that divorce is not permissible for any reason, save perhaps for one, and that's sexual immorality. And the disciples get it. They see at that point how serious the marriage covenant is, and they say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, then it's better not to marry. To which Jesus says, not everyone can receive this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. In short, Jesus says, you know what? You're absolutely right. It is better to remain single if you can. The Corinthians seem to be aware of at least this last bit of teaching. And the way it's expressing itself is with this desire to be single. In fact, if you think about the the assertion that begins this chapter, back in verse 1, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's not being driven by a concern that sexual relations tarnish the body that's been redeemed by Christ, right? Since at this point, the Corinthians don't seem to be aware of that concept just yet. Paul makes them aware of that concept in chapter 6, and he appears to be anticipating this abstinence party's response to that knowledge here in chapter 7. But up to this point, the reason for their abstention was not being driven by concerns about the purity of the body, since they thought the body was bad. Instead, it was being driven by this concern to live as more or less spiritual beings. And so when they're making that assertion, it's more than likely rooted in what Jesus says about eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom than in any concern for the purity of the body. And this is a subject that Paul is going to continue to discuss through the end of chapter 7. As we get down into verse 25, for instance, he's going to address the betrothed, and he's going to tell them, again, remain single if you can. He's actually going to have quite an extended discourse on this idea, explaining why it's better to remain single if they can. And do you know the reason that he's going to supply? Do you know why he says they should remain single? That's an important answer because his answer informs why he gives the same counsel up here in verses 8 and 9. The answer is found in verses 32 and 35. There Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. You guys hear that? This all has to do with their devotion to Christ. He wants them to remain single so they can give their undivided attention in service to Jesus Christ. The idea is that Christ has redeemed them. They've been set free from sin in order to serve Christ. And so if possible, they need to preserve that freedom by remaining single. In fact, this is really interesting. Look at what he says in verses 21 and 22. In verses 17 through 24, He's going to get into a second principle that we're going to discuss here in just a moment. And in verses 21 and 22, he's speaking to bond servants, to slaves. And he says, were you a called or were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. But he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You guys see these themes mixing together of freedom and devotion, of of freedom and servitude? The slave is a freed man in Christ. The one who is free, on the other hand, is a slave of Christ. What's Paul getting at there? He's getting at this idea that for the Christian, freedom doesn't mean freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. Freedom to follow the desires of the heart in serving Christ. And how is that expressed, expressed for the slave? Paul says, if you can, gain your freedom. Avail yourself of the opportunity. This is a dominant theme throughout this entire chapter. So how is this expressed for the single Christian? It means that they should remain single if possible, but, verse 9, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, I don't want you to miss the logic in that statement. Paul is obviously concerned about sexual immorality in verse 9. It's why he told husbands and wives not to deny themselves from their spouses in verses 1 through 7, so that their spouse would not be tempted to commit sexual immorality, right? But why? Is it because sexual immorality is sin? 
That's not why Paul is concerned, actually. Although, again, yes, sexual immorality is sin. But that's not the reason that Paul is thinking of. The reason, rather, was stated, again, back at the beginning of chapter 6, back when Paul began this discussion of sexual immorality, when he said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. That was Paul's whole, whole concern about the prostitute, right? It takes the body that's been redeemed by Christ, set free, and placed in service of Christ, and it places it into the service of someone outside of Christ. It allows them to be dominated by someone other than Christ. In this sense, it's not profitable for the Christian. It's not profitable for the one who is eager to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so why does Paul say to Christian spouses, don't keep yourself from your partner? Why does he tell the single Christian, marry, if you're going to burn with passion? The reason is not so much because sexual immorality is sin, although, again, sexual immorality is sin, but that's not the reason. Rather, the reason is because they are free. They have been freed from sin in order to serve Christ. And so they're to take every step they can to keep themselves that way. If that means total freedom, in the sense of freedom from the covenant commitment of marriage, great. If it means only a partial sort of freedom, one in which their interests are still divided, but they're not put into the service of a prostitute, one in which they can still serve Christ as they serve their spouse, then that's good too. Either way, they need to make the freedom that they've received in Christ a priority. You guys following the logic there? Well, if that's the case, then why shouldn't they divorce? Again, this seems to be the question that the Corinthians are asking, or at least which Paul anticipates. If our freedom is so important, then supposing I can control my sexual desires, meaning I'm not going to be enslaved in that sense, then why not divorce my spouse and keep myself completely dedicated to Christ? There are actually two answers to that question, each of which are captured in the next two principles, these next two gospel priorities, which are actually sort of interconnected with one another. So let's go ahead and look at these two principles together. Principle number two, live as an ambassador of Christ. Again, that's the second principle that you need to keep in mind as you consider how to handle not just marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but really any difficult issue like this one, you need to approach it as an ambassador of Christ. Live in, uh, as an ambassador of Christ. And then principle number three, live in light of the return of Christ. You need to look at the issue in light of the fact that Jesus is returning, and he's returning soon. The second principle comes out clearest in Paul's instruction to the Christian Mary, to the unbeliever. As we see in verse 12, and as we observed last week, Jesus doesn't address this specific situation in his instruction on divorce over in Matthew 19. Interestingly enough, there is one instance where the Bible does appear to address this sort of issue, and that's the book of Ezra. In Ezra 9 and 10, Israel recognizes that they've been disobedient and taking foreign wives for themselves. When the scripture explicitly warned them that this could lead to idolatry. And as a result, the people of Israel determined, under the direction of Ezra, to put away their foreign wives and along with their children. You can anticipate what the Corinthians might be thinking as a result of this. Perhaps they too need to divorce their unbelieving spouses and put away their children, just like Israel did in the Old Testament. This concern would only be amplified once the Corinthians realized what Paul was saying about the body back in chapter 6 and, and the need to have sex with one's spouse in chapter 7 and how this all ties into the implications of the resurrection for the Christian. Surely, they would think, surely Paul wouldn't expect us to remain married to 
and to even have sex with an unbeliever, right? Surely he would say we need to divorce them. Only Paul doesn't say that. He says instead they need to stay with them. And he gives three reasons for his answer. The first part has to do with this whole idea of holiness. You go back to the Ezra situation, and the marriages there crossed ethnic boundaries, not spiritual ones. This might make you think that what Ezra was worried about was the purity of Israel. That by marrying outside of Israel, they were creating a stock that was not holy unto God in the same way that Israel was. And if that was the case, then you might see what the Corinthians would be thinking here, since that would mean they would be doing the same with their unbelieving spouses. However, that actually wasn't the concern in Ezra. The reason why God considered intermarriage a problem in the Old Testament wasn't actually for ethnic concerns, but for spiritual ones. He told them back in the days of Moses that if they intermarried, then their uh, pagan wives would teach their children to love foreign gods. And that this would start a chain reaction of idolatry in Israel. That's actually what the people recognized had happened in the book of Ezra. Ezra reminds them of the commandments God made not to intermarry. He reminds them that the reason for this was because intermarriage would turn the hearts of the children away from God. In Ezra 9, 10 through 15. And as the people realize this, right, after the exile, they say, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there's hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. So that was the situation. It was all about idolatry. It was all about the condition of the people at that time and their tendency to fall into idolatry. It had nothing to do with any kind of ritual or ceremonial or even ethnic purity. The fact is God always allowed non-ethnic Jews into the people of God. No less than Jesus himself, right? And David before him were descended from the likes of Rahab and Ruth. Even more than this, you find this principle in the Old Testament that God will tend to even withhold his judgment of a particular people based on the presence of a righteous remnant in their midst. The most famous example of this is Lot, while he dwelled in Sodom and Gomorrah. But to some extent, you can say it was true of Noah in the human race, of Moses and the people of Israel. The most significant example is the inheritance we receive through the righteousness of Christ. We're considered holy, right, on account of his righteousness. Even the earth itself, when does judgment come? It would appear it comes after God's people have been removed in the rapture. It's this same concept that Paul has in mind when he says here, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. Listen, the only real reason that there would be to divorce one's, un one's unbelieving spouse, at least based on the Old Testament, would be because of the influence they might exercise over your children. Here, Paul says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. Some take this to mean that Paul's referring to the sanctifying influence of a parent over their children. I'll tell you personally, I'm not convinced because Paul says that otherwise the children would be unclean. That seems to be speaking more to a ceremonial kind of status. So maybe he would still agree that this is a legitimate concern. The only difference is that, again, the Spirit has changed some of these dynamics, right? And there's a whole lot we could say at this point regarding the role of Israel and the part that that command played in helping them fulfill that role, you know, distinctly from the role that Gentiles have to play. There's more we could say about the nature of these divorces and how that might affect our reading of the text. However, big picture, the idea is simply that holiness should not be a reason for divorce. That might be a concern based on what Paul said back in chapter 6, but it shouldn't be. Because the believer isn't making themselves or their children impure through their marriage to their spouse. If anything, they're making their spouse pure. So again, this is one reason why Paul says, stay with your spouse. 
The second reason is that by staying with their spouse, the believer might exert a kind of influence over their spouse that might eventually lead to their salvation. You actually see this happen all the time. In fact, just within the past couple of weeks, uh, someone was sharing their testimony with me. And uh, he told me, he said, I was wrestling with these things, you know, these spiritual questions. And about that time, my wife became a believer. And I noticed the changes in her life and how she began to treat me. And I tell you, it got my attention. Marriage is just an incredibly close relationship, right? And this means that spouses have the potential to influence one another immensely. That can be both for good or bad. I think of my wife, for instance, and I'll tell you honestly, there's no one who can probably make me as mad as she does sometimes. And conversely, there's no one who can move me to tears with their kindness as she can. And why is that? It's because our lives are intertwined. Her decisions affect me and vice versa. We see each other more than anyone else. We talk to each other more than anyone else. This means that there is more potential to influence one another than there is any other kind of relationship. So when a spouse converts, their partner gets a front row seat to all of that. They get to witness that transformation. The, the changes that might seem subtle to others aren't so subtle to them. They see it. They have conversations about it. They discuss it. Just from the perspective of exposure to the gospel, there's no better opportunity that you could ask for. And, and it's the same way with the children, right? And so if you're living in service to Christ, which in part means living as an ambassador of Christ, why would you ever want to leave that relationship? This really seems to be the major reason that Paul has in mind for staying. Right? Certainly the one that he ends on. The Corinthians are thinking, should we divorce our unbelieving spouses in order to be fully devoted to Christ? And Paul's response is to say, what are you talking about? That is devotion to Christ. I mean, this is the reason why we're here on this planet, right? To proclaim the gospel. Well, if we're thinking that way, then we're not going to want to push for a divorce in this kind of a scenario. The third reason Paul supplies comes in verse 15. There, Paul explains that if the unbelieving spouse wants a divorce, then the Christian is not, quote, enslaved or bound. Contextually, that probably means that they're not bound to this command not to divorce. They can let the divorce happen. And then Paul says, God has called you to peace. Or if you're reading in the New American Standard, then you might notice that Paul says, but God has called you to peace. That's actually how it's written in the Greek. And this doesn't appear to be an explanation for why they should let the divorce happen, i.e. they've been called to peace. Meaning they have been called to peace, so they shouldn't contend the divorce. Rather, Paul seems to be making a contrast between the unbeliever who wants a divorce and the Christian. He's saying, if they want to be free, okay, fine, let it happen. But you, on the other hand, you've been called to peace. Meaning, you don't create this kind of conflict by seeking a divorce. This seems to continue this ambassador idea. We are a people who've received this calling from God to be at peace with others. That not only reflects the character of God, it reflects the message that he's proclaiming in the gospel as he invites the world to be at peace with him. And so we embody that idea of peace. Not by creating conflict with our spouses, not by creating division, by seeking a divorce. We embody that idea instead by remaining with them. Are you seeing how this works? Are you seeing how these principles make sense of what Paul says in this passage? Incidentally, I think it's fair to say that this calling as ambassadors is also the primary reason why we shouldn't divorce our believing spouses. Now, to be clear, Paul doesn't actually elaborate on the reason for the command that he gives in verse 12. Uh, he just, uh, or actually verses 10 through 11 um, rather, he just repeats Jesus' instructions uh, from the Gospels. And the reason for that seems to be quite simply that there's really no good reason for the believer to divorce another believer. 
Again, understanding that if the major concern in this passage is about the believer's devotion to Christ, and specifically with respect to sexual sin, then that concern's already been addressed in verses 1 through 7. You, you're already serving Christ by helping your spouse stay free from sexual immorality. So really, there's no good reason to divorce in this context, not if the concern is the believer's own personal devotion to Christ, their own freedom from sexual immorality. However, I think we can still also say that to seek a divorce when it's not wanted, to seek a divorce for no other reason than that you're tired of your spouse, or even because perhaps you can't forgive your spouse because of some wrong they've done, that would contradict the gospel. It would contradict the character of Christ. After all, Christ puts others first, right? So to break a marriage covenant simply because loving that other person is, you know, quote, too tough, or because I want to pursue my own desires, that's not Christ-like. Christ is also faithful, is he not? The gospel doesn't proclaim a conditional love, wherein love is only promised so long as the beloved meets certain conditions. No, it's an unconditional love. And as we saw just a couple of weeks back, that's the sort of commitment we're making in the marriage covenant, isn't it? To put the other person first. It's not I'll love you so long as you make me happy. It's I'll love you despite all the pains and the struggles that we're going to go through together. It's not just a sacrificial commitment, it's an unconditional one. So to break that covenant, to act unfaithfully, that's not Christ-like. To break it because we can't forgive our partner for some sin they've committed against us? That's not consistent with Christ's character. Or to seek to be free of the covenant when the other person doesn't want to break it, to force that situation when it's unwanted? Again, that's not peaceable, is it? That's not Christ-like. Really, there's no way for two believers to divorce one another without, without at least one of them acting in a way that isn't Christ-like. And so if Paul is indicating down in verses 12 to 16 that the Christian should stay with the unbeliever based off of the concerns that they should have as ambassadors of Christ, I think we can easily say that he would make the same argument up here and conclude believers shouldn't divorce one another, period. Now, obviously, there's a cost to all of this, right? The basic idea is that the gospel means that we should be willing to serve when service isn't reciprocated, that we should be willing to dedicate ourselves to our spouse, to pour ourselves out for them with possibly little or no reward. After all, the believing, the unbelieving spouse, you know, they may convert, but they may not. That Christian spouse who's disobedient to the word, they may repent, but they may not. Even the spouse who's not disobedient per se, but who you're just not that compatible with for whatever reason. You know, you don't laugh at the same jokes together. You don't share the same interests. The one you seem to miscommunicate with all the time. Paul is saying in this passage, stay with them. <laughs> Listen, I've been in counseling scenarios like this enough that I know what a Christian is thinking at this point. I know what they may say. And they say, you're asking me to throw my life away. They're thinking, I'm stuck. There's just no way that I'll ever be happy then, this side of heaven. And that's where this third principle comes in, to live in light of the return of Christ. You see, there is a payoff to all of this. There will be a reward for your labor. It just may not be on this side of heaven. And the weight that you'll have to experience in the interim it's actually very, very short by comparison. This is going to be the theme that Paul is, is going to pick up through the rest of this chapter as he continues to pound this idea of being free in Christ. He's going to tell the Corinthians, try to remain as you are. Don't shake things up so much. Again, why? He's going to say verse 29, because the time is very short. Look at that passage. I know I'm jumping ahead here, but look at how Paul reasons with them as to why they should try to remain as they are and in this instance remain single, free, wholly devoted to Christ. 
He says, verses 29 through 31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. The whole idea is that this life is going to be over in an instant. This is what we believe in Christ. We believe that either Christ will return or that we will die and that in short order. And that at that time, we will not only receive eternal life, meaning that the scale of our existence after death will dwarf what takes place here on earth, but also that at that time, we will receive our reward for what we've done here in the body. And so what Paul is saying there in verses 29 to 31 is that because of this, we need to focus all our attention on serving Christ now without setting our hope on this life. Our only concern right now should be to serve Christ with all of our being. I tell you, when you begin to look at marriage through that lens, it changes your perspective. Not only does it place your attention on the good of your spouse once again, instead of on yourself, since you're seeing this life as one that's been purchased by Christ to be used for his glory, meaning the point isn't necessarily your own personal comfort or happiness or joy. The point, rather, is to spend this life for Christ. The comfort, the happiness, and the joy. I'm not saying we can't have it in this life, right? But the, the reward part, it comes after. Not only does that perspective do this, not only does it place your attention on your spouse's eternal good rather than your own earthly good, thus again discouraging divorce, but perhaps even more importantly, it reminds you that any so-called suffering that you would experience in the meantime is incredibly short. You know, 50 years may seem like a long time right now, but friends, after the first billion years in heaven, you're going to wonder what all the fuss was about. Sort of like when you were a kid, right? And you couldn't wait till Christmas. We couldn't wait until you could drive. We couldn't wait until you could move out and have your own family and start your own job. And at the moment, you thought that day would never come. And now, as an adult, you look back and you wonder what you were so impatient for. That's what it's going to be like in heaven. The gospel reframes your perspective of marriage in this sense. It reminds you that in the words of Paul, this light Momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's funny, you'll sometimes come across Christians who say, uh, life's too short to be trapped in an unhappy marriage. As if this life is the only time when they're going to find joy. You know, it's actually the other way around. Life's too short to bother trying to start over with a new spouse and a new family. The needs of the moment, the needs of eternity are too urgent and the personal consequences to ourselves too insignificant to try to make this kind of change in status. So the best route is to remain as you are, to glorify God in the condition that he's called you. And on that note, unfortunately, we're out of time. There's so much more that we could get into at this point now that we have the principles laid out for us. I really, I, I know sometimes we joke about pastors saying, you know, uh, there's so much more we could say as they end and it means that they, they've run out of things to say. Uh, I'm not, I don't mean that. I mean, we're really just getting started here. Like I said, the principle, this principle, uh, principles, plural, can help you think through a number of difficult scenarios. And if we had time, there's nothing I would love more than to run through a couple of them with you to see how these principles shake out practically with some rather tricky examples, uh, but sadly we lack the time to get into all of that. The main idea, however, is to stop playing defense and to go on offense. Get aggressive in your service to Christ. Get aggressive in your efforts to live in light of the gospel. And I think that as long as you do that, as long as you ask not what is permittable, but what is profitable, what best serves the interests of Christ, and ask this question through this gospel grid that we're talking about, then the answers will become more and more evident over time. 
Next week, we'll continue with this idea of remaining in the condition that we've been called. We'll talk about what Paul means by this statement, how it should affect the kinds of decisions that we make as Christians. In the meantime, let's close with a word of prayer.